0: Welcome to Policy, Guns & Money, the ASPE podcast. I'm David Rowe. This week, Brendan Nicholson talks to a stellar panel of guests about the future of peacekeeping and women, peace and security. We have United Nations Military Advisor General Birami Diop, the highest-ranking military officer in the UN's peacekeeping operations, former Force Commander of UN Peacekeeping Force in Cyprus, Australian Major General Cheryl Pearce, and Australia's defence attache to the United Nations, Group Captain Jarrett Pendlebury. The panel discusses the evolving challenges to peacekeeping operations, including cyber threats, misinformation and disinformation, and how the UN is adapting to the changing threat landscape. They also talk about progress on the women, peace and security agenda, the particular skills that women bring to peacekeeping operations, and the critical role women can play in peace negotiations.
1: General Diok, welcome to Australia. Given your crucial role with the United Nations, the war in Ukraine has demonstrated how technology such as small recreational drones can be used as very effective weapons and how civilian populations appear to have become far more vulnerable to long-range bombardment. This is a war waged by artillery in many ways. What does such development mean for peacekeeping? Thank you
2: very much for your question. Uh, this proves, in my opinion, that uh, the decision we have taken to launch what we call the digital transformation strategy within the United Nations that will help us take advantage of the availability of new technology of information and communication is very relevant. Peacekeeping cannot keep improving if we do not take advantage of the new technology of information and communication to improve the safety and security of our peacekeepers and also to improve our performance. The use of drones, as you know, can improve our intelligence gathering capabilities the use of drone can support the route clearance. You know very well that we have a lot of escorts that are organized to secure and guarantee the safety of our convoys. So the use of micro drones, we are already doing, needs to continue to help us improve our, the safety and security of our peacekeepers. So what is happening in Ukraine is proving to all of us that the future of peacekeeping will involve a bigger use of new technology of information and communication, and notably the micro drones.
1: And do you have the skills, do the personnel you're getting have the skills to use that sort of technology?
2: Yes, absolutely. The United Nations is working with key Partners to make sure that people who are using this very uh, modern technology are given the right training, are capacitated properly, so that they can use in a very responsible manner, a very efficient manner, all these instruments that are made available to them. As you know, the theatre of operation is more and more digitalized. And we need more and more to capacitate our peacekeepers in using the new technology of information and communication.
1: Do you have particular concerns about how it needs to be better
2: used and how you protect your people against its misuse? Oh yes, this is also the safety of the use of new information of communication tools. Uh, Not only We need to make sure that they are providing us the information we are looking for, but we need also to make sure that there is no adversarial interference in what we are doing. And uh, I think, yes, our professionals are well aware of this risk and are taking it very seriously and are putting all the necessary safeguards for this to not happen.
1: General Pierce, you were Force Commander of United Nations Forces in Cyprus from 2019 to 2021. How challenging was that role? How fluid did you find the situation on the ground? And did you implement changes in operational procedures during your own time there?
3: Yeah, look, thanks for that, Brendan. I'll take uh, in the order of the questions you asked me. If I think about how challenging it was... Having experienced a high threat environment such as Afghanistan and then as the task force commander and then shifting to UN, it was really a completely different mindset. My education and my training and my background certainly got me to the door and the pre- preparation for understanding Cyprus, its history. But once uh, joining the United Nations in leading a multinational force of 14 different nations in a multidimensional with UN police, um, the political and many of the other UN country teams really put um, all of my skills to use. And it was about really those that emotional intelligence, having the humility of being part of something bigger of contributing and it's using all the skills that I had as as a person, my human skills to support that. Really the other challenges for me was the language and the training background. A multinational force um, across many continents and member states had different training, different languages. We spoke English, um, but everyone's English was slightly different as well. So trying to have a common language was really important. But also the challenges is um, the political. It was a very political mission and as peacekeepers, we were often used um, for political gain and all of our soldiers on the ground were actually like your strategic corporals. Um, they, what their actions had a, an immediate political effect. So that's probably the key challenges that I think off the top of my head. From a fluidity perspective, I was there over the – pre-COVID and during COVID, and there was a significant difference. Um, Everyone was working towards a stepped approach to a political solution, and my role in the mandate for myself as part of the mandate was to stop a reoccurrence of fighting and to reduce the tensions, to keep the calm and stability, to enable a a political solution to be be realised. COVID in Cyprus um, was actually very divisive in splitting the peace process uh, there, and both sides used it for their own advantage. The crossing points that we had um, across the buffer zone between the north and the south that were generated and hard fought over a decade were all closed. For me, I lost, you know, as military, we talk about the command and control I had command of my forces in the north, but I lost control of them. I couldn't reach them. They couldn't get back into the buffer zone. They were locked into their bases. We couldn't get resupplies to them. Um, And so they couldn't conduct their duties. So how to operate within that and working with the headquarters to work politically to allow us to have the freedom of movement that we needed on the island and that really emphasised what I would call mission command and really providing that intent and allowing our soldiers and our officers on the ground to be actually carry out the how of the mission and the mandate and really working with that. Additionally, very much... Um, the opposing forces used COVID for their advantage. They there was significant um, violations, and they used the opportunity to gain more presence on the ceasefire lines. And technology was very difficult for the Turkish forces, and our engagement plan and our program of engaging for me between the two commanders of the Turkish forces and the Greek National Guard was difficult um, without the technology to be able to communicate and basic communication was very difficult with the North. And your third question, Brendan, about the changes for the time that I was there, it was really aligning to um, the A4P that the um, – that the UN headquarters had put out and we were very much supportive of. And it was really about my military forces in the safety and security and ensuring that we reputationally we were fit for purpose um, in the mission. So really the, the creation and the review of all of our SOPs, our standing operating procedures, was a priority of effort over about a nine-month period. We did an evaluation series, um, a force commander's evaluation series to ensure that the preparedness of the troops from the troop contributing countries met the requirement of the operations. So we, we certainly introduced that. We were able to achieve an agreed mission position on the ceasefire lines. 1974, the general at the time marked in a, you can imagine a, a green China graph pencil on talc was the ceasefire line, in real terms with technology, that could be a difference of 100 metres and 100 metres in a buffer zone is significant. So how do we actually articulate that through technology and working to be able to um, delineate that line and articulate it for common purpose across... But for me, the most important one was actually coming together as a mission, working with the permanent staff of the UN to have an integrated mission. We had a three-pronged mandate, which meant that um, we were all f- quite siloed. And how did we come to think about it from a singular integrated mission approach? And over 12 months as a whole, a mission, um, we worked together and, and and with the headquarters to create an integrated mission and changing the structure and the organisation and the mindset, which was most important to be thinking about it in a manner for which we could um, work towards the, the mandated achievement. And the last one, which linked to technology and the question you said before, is about how do we improve our shared intelligence picture and how do we work with um, both technology, systems and processes to enable us to be able to inform an intelligence picture that enabled myself as a force commander on the ground, but enabled all the elements of the mission to have the same common operating picture.
1: Group Captain Pendlebury. Clearly, Australia does not have the large numbers of military personnel to contribute to UN peacekeeping operations, as some of the other larger countries do. How has Australia tailored its role and how significant is that role?
4: Uh, that's a great question, uh, Brendan. Um, and you're right. At the moment, uh, we have anywhere, depending on rotations, between 25 and 30 peacekeepers deployed across missions in the Middle East and, uh, and also in Africa. And uh, that, in the grand scheme of things, is not a large troop con- contribution. Um, there are tables that are released every few months that uh, detail the largest troop contributing countries all the way down to um, uh, the uh, the countries that only provided a few troops. And we sit somewhere in the sort of, I guess, 70s in terms of that contribution. Now, historically, the value of a of a, of a uh, member state's contribution to the UN system has largely been viewed through how many troops have been deployed. And that's a really important metric, of course, because um, having large numbers of troops deployed in the field does introduce a significant amount of risk we see in some of our missions. The multidimensional missions are actually very uh, risky. So that's that's a really important demonstration of contribution and support to the UN. But what um, we have uh, tried to sit back and have a bit of a look at from the Australian perspective is how we can, with only those um, small numbers of troops deployed, contribute in other ways uh, to be able to um, share our experiences and the the things that we have competitive advantage with here in Australia uh, on the global scale. So what we've been working on over the last few years is to try to understand the areas within uh, the United Nations system that um, we can provide support to. And the General mentioned uh, one earlier, which was the um, Secretary-General's Digital Transformation Strategy, or the... Strategy for the Digital Transformation of UN Peacekeeping, to give it its very, very long name. Um, and that was one area that we identified as, uh, as as a place that we could, given Australia's background on, in innovation and uh, digital transformation, um, provide some, some support uh, to that uh, initiative. So in the uh, 2021 Seoul Peacekeeping Ministerial, uh, Chief of Defence Force uh, General Campbell uh, announced a pledge that Australia would, establish an innovation hub within the Department of Peace Operations. This innovation hub is a really exciting project um, and I think showcases what we do really well within Defence, but Australia more broadly, in being able to introduce agility and scale promising research projects quickly to be deployed in the field. Uh, so we're still working through uh, with the United Nations the, the, the growth of this, uh, of this innovation hub. But the plan will be for it to connect three major stakeholders in the system, one of them and the most important being the United Nations needs. And so the, the uh, peacekeepers on the ground have, in every mission, um, acute needs that are sometimes not easily addressed with the um, capabilities and resources that the UN has. With those needs being fed back into the innovation hub, uh, that hub will then be able to connect uh, the needs with member states and uh, other uh, people who might be able to provide some financial support. And then the third uh, our stakeholder is an innovation community, which we're building at the moment, which is researchers, it's industry, it's uh, think tanks. And these are the people who have the great ideas, but may not necessarily have the resources to be able to scale them quickly. And so by being the connective tissue between all of those groups, um, the Innovation Hub will be able to quickly get promising research scaled and then out to the mission to, uh, to solve some of the problems um, that are really, really sort of um, intractable in some cases and difficult to solve. Are you able to give us an example of a problem or a solution that may be on the horizon? Sure. So one of the uh, projects that we're working with at the moment, we haven't actually finalised the details here, but we're working with um, a university to understand how uh, social innovation programmes can be uh, deployed by peacekeepers in in order to understand not only um, uh, how to solve social problems within the peacekeeping environment, but also how to solve social problems within the peacekeeping forces themselves. So uh, in the um, Secretary-General's Action for Peacekeeping Plan that was uh, that was released a few years ago, and then the subsequent Action for Peacekeeping Plus strategy to to um, to implement it. Uh, there are a number of pillars that have been identified as as areas to focus on to improve peacekeeping outcomes, and uh, you know some of those involve uh, the conduct and performance of peacekeepers themselves. And so, um, to get back to the the project itself, what we are uh, planning for this project to do is to identify a framework through which we can understand the root cause of of social problems within and outside the peacekeeping force and then uh, by understanding what the root causes are better tailor solutions to those problems rather than just treating the uh, the symptoms which tends to unfortunately be the way that um, we uh, like to approach things in the military certainly
1: right now last september you advocated at the security council for the effective use of strategic communication as a tool to maintain the un's visibility in the information space mm-hmm. can you explain a little bit what the goal of that is
4: um yes uh, so we're seeing you know outside of the peacekeeping uh, domain and just in in society general that information is now very much a domain of contestability um and it's nowhere more evident, I think, than, uh, than in peacekeeping. Uh, the General spoke earlier, again, about the um, digital transformation strategy, and I think that part of what is highlighted in there is that we are, as member states, but also, I guess, as member states that contribute to the um, United Nations, perhaps not uh, or a little bit behind the curve when it comes to understanding the importance of the information domain in terms of um, uh, helping to articulate what it is that we're trying to achieve in yeah. mission um, we are finding in in some of the missions at the moment that uh, uh, mis and disinformation is very easily uh, disseminated through social media feeds uh, and also through um, you know all of the <coughs> excuse me all of the connectivity that um, th- that is easily enabled by digital um, technology these days and um, the UN I think can no longer rely on what perhaps was uh, our competitive advantage in the past, which was presence and visibility. Um, Now there are active um, campaigns that are spreading mis- and disinformation that peacekeepers are here to do particular things that that obviously they are not here to do, steal resources or or to modify social structures in in malign ways. So what uh, we um, were um, calling for in the national statement that uh, I articulated in the Security Council, was to take a um, holistic view of how we can utilise the information domain to spread the um, story of why we are in missions to the local populations who are so, so important to uh, the success of peacekeeping missions. And the, the General has said on many occasions um, in, uh, in his public uh, statements that without the support of those that we are there to help... Uh, there is no um, peace to keep, and I think that um, that's really the heart of what we were talking about in that national yep. statement in understanding the information domain. General Diop, how important
1: did you see the um, the development of that innovation hub with
2: Australia's help? As you know, we have three core values in the United Nations. One is the respect for diversity. The other one is integrity. And the third one is professionalism. And if you go to professionalism, you will see that the UN is advocating very strongly for innovation. Innovation will help us think ahead, anticipate, so that we are not in a reactive mode all the time. Innovation will help us also diversify the solutions our difficulties so this hub is a timely invention that will help the united nations put the conditions for people to come with new ways of facing our challenges and uh, australia with this hub was able to come up with very original solutions to australia's challenges And I'm sure that the fact that we are experiencing this uh, platform in the UN will also add value to what we have been doing so far. So innovation is key. It helps, more importantly, anticipate. It helps being more efficient. As you know, nowadays, we have a lot of challenges related to the availability of resources. So we need to be innovative enough to find more efficient ways of dealing with our challenges so it's a timely timely project that australia is helping the un to put in place
1: right now it appears to an outsider like myself that peacekeeping is getting a more risky business as a consequence of a range of issues now you know one of them being technology another being something that you have touched on Uh, and that is the the role of non-state actors, some of whom are violent and extreme. How has the UN adapted to the deployment of peacekeepers in active war zones in areas where there's no peace to keep? And is mission creep a danger on these operations?
2: And can you continue to operate in places like that? This is a very important question, as you rightly said. The peacekeeping environment is more and more complex with the surge of these non-state actors, but it is also more and more violent. And what makes it more and more violent is that wearing the blueberry or wearing the blue helmet is not a guarantee of protection for peacekeepers anymore given the fact that many non-state actors do not recognize our legitimacy to intervene on behalf of the international community, do not recognize our impartiality, so they are targeting us the same way. They are targeting their adversaries and their enemies. So this makes it a lot more violent. And the use of improvised explosive devices is also making the environment more violent. We are losing a lot of peacekeepers due to the use of IEDs or, more broadly, to the use of explosive devices. What we can do about that is to make sure that within the the missions, we take the necessary measures to improve the safety and the security of our peacekeepers, but also we need to train our peacekeepers better to protect themselves before they even deploy. And that's what we are trying to do with the TCCs, to make sure that the curricula of the training is adapted to the realities on the ground. There will never be risk-zero missions, but we can do our best to make sure that the safety and the security of our peacekeepers are improved, are guaranteed. And that's why. It's one of the eight priorities of the action for peacekeeping that is put in place by the Secretary General. The safety and the security of peacekeepers, but also the protection of civilians. Because if the the environment is more violent, peacekeepers will lose their lives, but also civilians will lose their lives. And the two are intrinsically linked. We have the duty to make sure that we deploy Minimising the risk peacekeepers are taking, but we need also to make sure that we deploy and we give ourselves the means to protect better the civilian populations.
1: Yeah, Sometimes there's um, other multilateral regional organisations carrying out peacekeeping operations of one kind or another in the areas where the UN is deployed.
2: How is that made to work? You know, uh, the sec- Secretary-General in action for peacekeeping, has also emphasized the importance to build partnerships. Partnerships at the international level, partnerships at the regional level, but also partnerships at the local level. So the Secretary General emphasizes the fact that when we join hands, when we coordinate our actions, we are always more capable. So the regional partnership is key for the success of peacekeeping. I think of the African Union can be a good partner to the United Nations when we deploy for peacekeeping missions in Africa. We think of uh, the economic community of West African states, ECOWAS, can also be a reliable partner when we deploy to West African countries for peacekeeping operations for example, in Mali, because it's about ECOWAS countries' collective security. So it is normal and makes sense for the United Nations to partner with this regional organisation so that we can be successful and we can promote peace and sustainable stability.
1: It's now over 20 years since uh, the United Nations passed Resolution 1325 on Women, Peace and Security. How do you see the role of women in peacekeeping operations? Has that been developed and harnessed effectively? And what can women bring to peacekeeping operations? Sometimes there's claims it's just tokenism. Other people who've done research talk about very strong practical impacts and improving the range of skills – that make operations more likely
2: to be successful and less dangerous? This is a very important question. And uh, the United Nations is well aware of the fact that if we do not take the necessary measures to make sure that women are part of what we're trying to achieve in building and peacemaking, it will be extremely difficult for us to be successful. So, we have developed what we call Women, Peace and Security Agenda to achieve two goals. One, to make sure that women are part of the peacemaking and peace building initiatives. Second, to make sure that women are better protected in conflict-related sexual violence. So, this is what WPS is trying to achieve now for WPS to have chances to be implemented in the best conditions possible we need to make sure that women are part of the efforts the UN is deploying to implement WPS that is why the United Nations has developed what we call the uniformed gender strategy and uh, this one has set very clear goals, not only for individual uniformed personnel, but also for units. The target being to have 15% of female representation in our units by 2028, and 25% by 2028 of representation of women in individual uniformed personnel. So far, we are very happy to see that for the individual uniformed personnel, we are doing quite well because in 2023, the target is 20% and we are beyond 20%. It's for the units that we are still lagging behind. Some countries are doing very well, some others less, but we are still sensitizing, advocating for countries that are not doing uh, as well as the others for them to catch up and take the necessary uh, measures for that. As you know, It is a quite delicate topic and you need to have a tailored approach that will take into consideration specificities of all TCCs that will also respect the realities of all TCCs. And so far we can say that our message is well received and TCCs are very cooperative and are working hand in hand with the UN. To make sure that those targets are met in a timely manner.
1: Sorry, just to clarify, what, what is the target and the, and the target date?
2: The target for the individual uniformed personnel, meaning the United Nations military staff officers or United Nations military observers or United Nations military experts in missions who are advising the forces and who are advising the leadership the target for these people who are deploying individually is to have 25% of them being female personnel by 2028. And the other target for the units is 15% by 2028. So this year, 2023, the target is 10% for the units and 20% for the individual uniformed personnel, and every year we need to add 1% to this number.
1: In terms of the practical impact, are there any impressions you have of what difference that can make on the ground or in planning for operations?
2: Even beyond peacekeeping, putting women and men together in the right conditions will always improve what we call our collective intelligence meaning that we will be more capable. This is true in all domains, including in the peacekeeping domain. On top of that, it is known that in peacekeeping, unfortunately, women and children are the main victims of conflict. So we need to reach out to the women and to their children. And it was proven that these women victims are more inclined to interact with women peacekeepers. So this will add a value in the performance of the peacekeepers. The more women we have, in all levels of responsibility, the more efficient we will be. And as you know also, peacekeeping relies a lot on intelligence gathering. And intelligence is given by 75% by open sources, human beings. If you don't have the trust and the confidence that need to exist between peacekeepers and local population, you will miss a lot of the information you need to perform. So the presence of women will also facilitate the trustful interaction that needs to be there for the populations to give the information they know to the peacekeepers. General Pierce, now you...
1: Had the fortitude and the skills to rise to high rank in the Australian Defence Force. And now you've been in command in a difficult peacekeeping operation. What are your impressions about the role of women, the importance of women, what they can achieve, and whether we have enough of them yet?
3: Yeah, look, thanks, Brendan. It's been, um, being female in the military has been one I've embraced and fought my whole career. Um, and I would say back to my early decades, it was trying to hide the feminism, trying to hide being a female and to think like a male and to be part of, of the position and the mainstreaming of, uh, of a male conversation and thinking. And then as we've, I've become more senior is embracing my differences. Um, when I joined and when I led, uh, in other operations and in different command, I've led with, Uh, We're very much a values-based leadership, um, in a style of an inclusive and diverse environment. I took my same leadership style into the peacekeeping environment and really ensure that I worked and set the conditions for an inclusive and diverse workforce to enable everyone, regardless of background and their culture, their education, their Their training, um, and their gender to be able to contribute equally and to be respected for their contribution. Now, for UNFASIP or the the United Nations forces in Cyprus, uh, I was very fortunate we had the 25% of individual staff officers and we'd hit the sweet spot where it wasn't singled out as being female is what is your contribution? How do we do the planning? Is everyone's voice was equal? And in, the, um, the units where we were trying to get, which is more difficult to have female participation in formed units, we were fortunate we had 10%. And what that enabled me to do was really tailor my forces for to response to the environment, whether it be out patrolling, I could um, deploy f- female engagement teams, I can deploy um, mixed engagement teams, patrolling uh, out patrolling and also engaging with opposing forces, but equally, both myself and my male and female officers could then be involved with um, the civil society and the communities for which we were supporting, and you know we should be representing what they are, which is fifty percent women. So how do we have that contribution? and again, that intelligence that we gain from them is more broad, and we bring it together um, and synthesise it as a mission. So for me, it's all about being part of the bigger conversation across troop-contributing nations. How do we work with them to really empower both the individuals and the countries to um, be able to um, educate and train and contribute females to, to the peacekeeping missions? Um, but equally for me is not just only the getting them to the missions. It's about the retention um, because to grow a senior female officer is over decades and to – needing the experience in a in a peacekeeping mission as a junior officer, if they're not felt valued or if there is unacceptable behaviour or bullying, they're not going to put up their hand to come back again and come back as a more senior officer. And then the opportunities for the United Nations to harness this skill set in some of the the more senior appointments and the ability to influence not only in the military space but in the peace building and the political and the whole of the multidimensional space is really, really important. Um, So I do believe we are getting there and Australia is well positioned. We have um, a high proportion of our troops that we do contribute, our soldiers and officers um, and sailors and 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 um, Air Force personnel, is that we do have the, we met the requirements of the female contribution. So um, General Campbell is very much a huge advocate of our contribution and what we can provide as a force multiplier to um, peacekeeping, both as an individual and as a formed body.
1: Group captain, do you have any feelings on whether having the numbers actually achieves the goal or whether... More needs to be done to ensure that
4: the women are having the impact that they can have I do yes uh, so one of the phrases that's used quite frequently in the UN system is um, is that we must all strive for women to have full equal and meaningful participation in the peace enterprise I guess one of the things that we find in the in the UN and I think that this is perhaps uh, evident across all organisations who are trying to create inclusive environments is that we move quite quickly and are drawn to things that we can measure. And obviously, um, statistics are a good um, and quick way of um, understanding whether we're meeting any uh, types of KPIs. The problem is, and and we see it even in um, the statistics within the Australian Defence Force, is that sometimes those statistics may not necessarily give you a holistic understanding of whether the root causes, like I spoke before, about why you might not have an inclusive organisation are actually being addressed. So a really good example, and this is slightly getting off topic a little bit, but I think it articulates the point a bit, is um, when you look at um, some of the statistics within the services, um, Army, Navy, Air Force here in Australia, who are meeting um, gender uh, goals that have been set out by um, senior leadership, but then break it down in terms of rank levels, there's a huge, I guess, a disproportionate number of the, of the amount of women are in the most junior uh, rank levels. And then you see as the uh, rank levels increase that that drops off significantly um, due to a, a variety of factors. But I think a lot of them, uh, as you mentioned before, ma'am, that, um, you know, relate to retention issues. So, you know, is the culture... One that is inclusive enough to um, to be a place that women want to stay in, and are uh, the uh, the workplace um, policies uh, congruent with a, an inclusive environment. So anyway, that was a really long way, I guess, of of, of saying that I think um, statistics is part of it, but the full and meaningful element of the sort of the the three words that we often use within the UN system is an area that. I think needs a little bit more attention, so that we can actually articulate clearly what that means. Now, at the moment in New York, uh, right now, the um, Special Committee on Peacekeeping Operations is is having its annual session, uh, also known as the C34, and it's a it's a subcommittee of the fourth committee in the in the United Nations committee system. And basically, all of the member states get together. Some of them form um, uh, negotiating blocks, and we sit and we talk about the issues with um, peacekeeping. Now, the uh, the report that is finally pulled together by consensus uh, has eight chapters, and they all um, are aligned with the Secretary General's A4 uh, Action for Peacekeeping pillars. And um, one of the enduring issues that we have, and I think this speaks to your question here about um, about how to create an inclusive environment for women, is the I guess dual effect of having one of those pillars being women, peace, and security. So we uh, negotiate an entire chapter that focuses on the um, the issues that we are facing at the moment with integrating women into into the peace um, enterprise. The danger of having a, an entire pillar focused on women, peace, and security is you lose focus of the fact that it is a cross-cutting issue. Mm-hmm. So every aspect of the peace um, peace process, as uh, General Job mentioned before impacts and and can benefit from having um you know these inclusive environments where women are uh, are equal partners in the peace um uh, in the peace process and we often find in the negotiations that people will say things like in the safety and security chapter if we're talking about creating um, uh, environments or or bases that that um, uh, address the issues the specific issues of women to to support the safety and security of, of women peacekeepers, they'll say, oh, th- you know, th- that's something that we need to put into the Women, Peace and Security chapter because that's a, a a women's thing. Now, that, I think, is working against what we're trying to achieve. And so um, what we're hoping to do um, in our negotiating blocks, so we negotiate with Canada and New Zealand, so the CANS group, is to try to, in these negotiations, bring out this concept of, of saying, yep, we focus on statistics, but we also need to flesh out the rest of the, the full and meaningful aspects of, of what women's participation means in the peace process. General, nobody would be more
1: aware than you of the extraordinary range of qualities and quality and um, values in the nations that make up the United Nations. How do you find attitudes uh, towards meeting the targets that you've set for the participation of women from different countries. Are you finding some more enthusiastic than others? Uh,
2: I would not say that uh, we have countries that are more enthusiastic than others. I just would say that uh, the reality is depending on the country you're talking about might differ for traditions reasons, for sometimes religious reasons, for cultural reasons. Mm -hmm. And we have to respect this diversity within our community of peacekeepers and see how we can, in a respectful way, engage a dialogue that is constructive enough to help us as a team work together toward our goals. Uh, The fact is that there are some countries, yes, who are doing better now, Are they more enthusiastic? I would not say that, but they are doing better based on the numbers. We can talk about the Scandinavian countries that have quite good numbers in the participation of women in peacekeeping, particularly in the individual uniformed personnel. And uh, we have countries, for example, in other continents of the world that are doing uh, a little bit less And we are also working with these countries to make sure that together we move towards these goals, respecting each country's realities, each country's specificities, because there is no one-fits-all approach. The world is diverse, and we need to be aware of this diversity to respect it and put in place a tailored approach. That can help work very efficiently with each one of the member states.
1: General, if I can just, um, you forgive me, cast forward to something that I understand has been of interest to you. I understand that you have suggested, with some foresight, that there may be a future role for peacekeepers in space, particularly as uh, mankind seeks more intensively to search for resources there. Is that something you have
2: an interest in? I am interested in whatever can improve peacekeeping, including space. We are currently working with Australia on the formulation of a discussion paper, whereby we will be discussing in all regards the good use of air power in improving peacekeeping. I would not say that peacekeeping can improve space, but I would rather say that we are interested in knowing what the use of space can bring to peacekeeping in terms of improving our communication means, for example. You know very well that communication is key for the success of peacekeeping. In terms of maybe acquiring the right, and timely intelligence using space. Space is perceived as very far away, but everything that is being faced by human beings today can be improved if we are able to take advantage of all what space is offering to humanity. And that's why in the near future we will be also working with countries that are interested in working with the UN to see how the use of space can improve what we are doing as peacekeepers.
1: And you not, would you be including any sort of offensive capability or defensive capability when you talk about air power?
2: Air power can help us improve a lot of principles. Yeah. We need to put in place to be more efficient and more effective in peacekeeping. Uh, Air power can bring flexibility to our operations, can give us versatility in our operations, can also give us the possibility to be in different places at the same time. I don't know the word, if the word, uh, the, the word ubiquity does exist in English, but it gives the possibility to peacekeepers to be in different places at the same time. But also, it gives us the possibility to react very fast, to anticipate also, yep. to give uh, what the peacekeepers need to commit themselves without any reservation to their mission because they are sure that with air power, we are able, when things do not go very well, to rescue or to give the support to our peacekeepers who are engaged in operation. So yes, air power can bring a lot of value added to what we are doing, and it is time for us to create the conditions for this air power to support the peacekeeping efforts as much as it can.
1: Look, just to finalise, General Pearce and Group Captain, what would you say to colleagues who might not necessarily be considering opportunities to work with the UN in terms of part of a career path?
3: Uh, Look, just from my experience, um, Brendan, both as a junior officer, as a military observer in East Timor, my experiences in higher threat in Afghanistan and and to come back as um, a force commander in peacekeeping it's an opportunity that just uh, uses all your skill set that you have as a, as a military officer. Um, but it, what it brings to me is something greater than purely, um, the uniform I wear. It's about contributing to something greater than ourselves. And it's about that global peace and security and contributing for when you see the protection of civilians for the, the women and the children, the communities for which we support. Um, to be able to bring, bring bear your skills, your, your background and contribute as part of a multinational force, I think is significant. And it really is a value add. And for any officer within the Australian Defence Force is to put their hand up and volunteer, um, to have an opportunity both at a junior level and in due course at a senior level. I found it very rewarding and, um, a huge advocate of UN peacekeeping.
4: So I would answer the, the, uh, the question from a, uh, the context of, of, of my role as representing Australia to the United Nations, um, we're very comfortable in defence in our bilateral relationships from uh, you know, one country to another. But what I enjoy the most and find the most stimulating and satisfying about my role is the ability to engage in multilateral diplomacy and, uh, and through that uh, create a better future Um, not just in the peacekeeping space, but also for um, Australia on the world stage. It's it's an amazing opportunity that is very rare, and I'm enjoying every minute of it. Climate change has already created disasters that your peacekeepers
1: have had to contend with, and such disasters are likely to trigger mass people movements and conflict over territory. Is that something that concerns you as somebody responsible for peacekeeping operations in the future?
2: yeah absolutely uh, climate change is uh, and climate change consequences are a reality in our world now, and uh, we are already witnessing massive movements of populations due to consequences of uh, climate change and uh, this movement will for sure impact the environment in which our peacekeepers are deployed and uh, can also make it uh, very uh, challenging for the humanitarians to do the work they're supposed to do. So uh, peacekeeping is, yes, integrating this uh, dimension of uh, the environment in which we are operating and uh, uh, is uh, also trying to give the peacekeepers all the capabilities they need to participate in containing all these consequences that are brought by climate change. And uh, in addition to this, we are more and more interested in making sure that when we deploy, we are not creating the conditions that are also participating in destroying our environment. That's why we developed not a long time ago what we call a reduction of our Environmental footprint in peacekeeping mission. How can we deploy without adding environmental concerns to the already existing env- environmental challenges in the place we're deploying?
1: General, thanks very much. And uh, General Pierce and Group Captain, thank you very much. Fascinating discussion.
0: Thanks for listening to Policy Guns and Money. We'll be back with another podcast next week.